Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's a curious morning here in Wiltshire. We have slushy snow, wind, trees down outside, and actually my roof is leaking. Hello from me, Richard Heller, in south-east London, and I can't wait to get the weather that always drifts in from you. At the moment, it's um, just cold and grey over here. You wait. It's freezing cold. But we have uh, a very serious guest today, a former editor of Wisdom, one of the great writers of the game for the last uh, 40 years. It's a great joy to welcome uh, Shield Berry to the podcast. Uh, Shield is a as you say, is a great writer and reporter of cricket. We've been following his um, cricket reporting, first in the Observer and then the Daily Telegraph for what um, over 40 years. Shield has just published a superb book called Beyond the Boundaries, which we're going to talk about pretty extensively, about his experience covering England uh, on tour since 1978 in all the countries which they've toured which is all the current test-playing countries, bar um, Afghanistan and Ireland, the most recent ones. Shield, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. Shield, your book is called Beyond the Boundaries, and it's very accurately titled because it gives a lot of context outside of cricket to all of the countries where you've been to. It tells you a lot about their, their history, their current social and economic condition, their culture, um, and it's a... I may say a very, very rewarding experience in that sense. Well, the original working title was going to be Boogie Boarding with Blowers <laughs> uh, because boogie boarding or bodyboarding is one of the perks of the job if you're a cricket journalist uh, going around the world and um, lying on a, a surfboard. And you don't need a wetsuit. It's only since I retired oh. from touring 18 months ago that I've had to buy a wetsuit. Um, so it was going to be boogie boarding with blowers, but then I thought I get a phone call saying, "My my, my dear old thing, um, I, I've I've never been boogie boarding with you. I love you dearly, but my <laughs> lawyers are going to be on to." And um... <laughs> it'd be a very resting sight, Henry Blofeld on a, on a boogie board. It'd have to be hand. It would be hand tailored and hand painted. I'm sure to match whatever costume he was wearing. Yeah. Mm. What I love about your book, many things I love about it, but I love the continuity because when Richard and I were researching Pakistan, history of Pakistan cricket, we quickly discovered that your book uh, on the 87 tour, wasn't it, Shields? Yeah. Um, was the first one which didn't just concern itself with, you know, how well Gatting had batted, but actually it, 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 uh, it, you went way beyond uh, the cricket field. You were the first Western writer, I think, to identify, for instance, the role of Lord Justice Cornelius in, in mm. creating um, the kind of administrative structure of Pakistan cricket. You you really wrote very, very, very well about uh, Qadar and Fazal. And it was so nice to discover this. So th thank you for that, uh, pointing us in that direction. Well, th thank you to them. I mean, it was just so easy in those days, you know, um, you say to Hanif Mohammed, please, can I, please, sir, can I have an interview? And he said, yeah, let's take a chair onto the outfield in the mm -hmm. National Stadium in Karachi. And he'd put a, uh, a couple of chairs would be put out and somebody would bring tea and he would reminisce. So I was fabulously fortunate. Sure. The back cover of the book says uh, nobody's watched 
Uh, more England Test matches than you. Have you joined the 450 Club with um, our friend Kamar Ahmed? Um, and when did you ever take John Woodcock, uh, who I think had done over 400 himself? Uh, yeah, I passed 450 a couple of years ago in um, New Zealand. It's only numbers anyway. Um, but uh, uh, So I haven't seen everyone since then because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wood has said that um, he had seen just under 400 England tests and about 420 tests in all because, you know, he'd often go off and cover, you know, Australia, West Indies or something like that. Mm. But obviously, Richie Better uh, saw 500, so. Yeah, but he, but he had a slightly unfair advantage because he played in some of them, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, anyway, the title should r- remain with Richie forever. Well, we need to consult Kama. Is he still Kama Ahmed, our great friend? Is he still covering test matches? I think he is. In which case, no, I think he retired. Um, we can ask him unless he's been enticed back. I think I think Kama would have um, seen more international cricket matches than anyone because uh, he said he was when we compared notes a couple of years ago. He was a few behind on tests, but he'd seen eight hundred one day internationals. Yes. Um, shoot, your first tour, in, uh, which you cover in the book, is um, Australia, 1978-1979. And uh, one thing you mentioned is that that was very extensively covered by print journalists. And now the coverage mm. of cricket by print journalism, as you know, has been very greatly reduced. It's um, been uh, largely replaced by t- uh, television and online media. And I just wondered, what do you think... That's done to the way cricket's reported and received by the public in general. Could I um, just go back a bit, um, mm. Richard, before going forward? Because I was happened to be rowing on Bristol Harbour earlier this week, and I went uh, row past the SS Great Britain, um, and that was the ship that took the first two English touring teams to Australia. And the there, there wouldn't be such a book as this. Uh, we wouldn't be sort of sitting here having this conversation. Um, had uh, Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel not come up with this game changer because the first ever cricket tour was uh, uh, to America, wasn't it, in a wooden ship in uh, the late 1850s. And it was such a horrendous journey. And um, they'll be playing at the end of the season, you know, in October in North America before getting back. Um, So there wasn't really much attraction about cricket touring then until um, the SS Great Britain came along and that opened up the immense possibilities, A, of getting away from England in winter. Mm. Um, that's obviously a prime objective of going on a cricket tour, whether you're playing or, or watching. Um, s- secondly, um, it uh, meant you could get to the Southern Hemisphere uh, somewhere warm. Mm. And um, the, the other great uh, pleasure of life um, on a cricket tour is uh, sampling the delights of the, of the host country. So um, uh, at the SS Great Britain, yeah, just right past it, there, there are six enormous masts and there were 16,000 square feet of canvas so that um, they got to a Melbourne in two months, uh, 61 days, I think it was. Uh, without even stopping at um, Cape Town for, for recoaling. There was no um, Suez Canal, obviously, in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a few years before. Um, so to be able to get in a ship uh, in September in England and travel to Australia um, fairly safely, and then they went first class, and um, it was quite 
um, a pleasant voyage from what uh, Ian Grace tells us in his diary about the, the second voyage there on the SS Greatland. Uh, and and that, that opened up a new world, didn't it? I mean, without um, a non-wooden sailing ship, but a, a steam-powered, uh, steam and sail-powered um, uh, iron, in this case, um, SS Great Britain, taking the teams to Australia, uh, there wouldn't, uh, cricket touring, you know, wouldn't have followed. There's a very nice article, isn't there, to be written, actually, about the uh, technological innovations which have changed cricket. I, what you, I hadn't realised, I hadn't thought about the point you're making about steam. Steamships, mm. obviously crucial, but then air travel. The lawnmower made an absolutely central uh, mm. difference uh, in the late 19th century. Um, and of course, nowadays, DRS, all these innovations. Uh, yeah, and, and, and WG Grace wouldn't have been famous if the, the, the railways hadn't just opened up and made yes. county cricket possible. Brilliant point. Yeah. Um, one very practical change uh, I noticed in, from your book, um, uh, it, print technology uh, has changed dramatically. Technology generally, print technology has um, changed dramatically. And uh, you mentioned in your book um, having sort of almost to downplay the big story of 1978 in Australia, the discovery of Rodney Hogg as an Australian fast bowler, because it wouldn't fit into the deadlines you then had for the Observer. Is that right? Well, yeah, there were two technological. Well, there's another technological matter, which was the fact that Kookaburra, A.G. Thompson's in Melbourne, started producing machine-made uh, balls for the test series. And they had a much prouder seam than the hand-stitched ones. Uh, and so the ball was jagging around all over the place. I mean, Hoggy got his 40 wickets at 12, average of 12. Um, but, you know, um, the, the England seam attack was uh, collectively uh, just as good. So batting has probably never been more difficult uh, in Australia in the 20th century than it was then. Um, yeah, meantime, um, <laughs> the, um, uh, yeah, if, working with the Observer as I did then, um, feature, everything was set in stone, literally. So um, the feature had, article had to go out during the week, Thursday, Friday, because the only live copy would be accepted on a Saturday. Uh, and I'd written a a feature about how uh, there were quite a lot of good fast bowlers in Australia, like Alan Hurst, uh, Wayne Clark, um, even though all Lillian Thompson was signed up for World Series. Uh, and then um, on the Saturday, Rodney Hogg um, was um, bowling against England and hitting Clive Radley on the head and announcing himself and um, Don Bradman was rumoured to have said it, watching from the stand, that he's a good one. Um, but I had to sort of downplay this because I'd already said my piece in saying there were lots of other, my feature for saying there were lots of other fast bowlers um, <laughs> in Australia. Anyway, it was um, uh, a lesson in if you don't like the heat, stay out of the kitchen. Um, but I decided to stay in the kitchen for the next 40 years. Yes, as, a, as a political journalist, I know exactly the feeling. You write a piece... Uh, dismissing the prospects of Maggie Thatcher of winning the 1974 leadership contest. <laughs> and then you have to cope with the results a bit later on. <laughs> There's a sort of etiquette in the uh, parliamentary lobby. We don't refer to um, each other's um, miscreant <laughs> errors of that nature. Yes. Maybe the epitaph on our tombstones might. <laughs> 
One uh, other thing I noticed in the um, early section, you mentioned uh, the code, what happens on tour stays on tour. Do you think that code's now been weakened or even um, or even vanished altogether because you read so much about what happens on tour that used never to be reported? Well, to get, go back to your original question about uh, yeah, the relations of, of media and players, uh, it was one party when I started in uh, uh, 77 going to Pakistan. You just got on a team bus and went to the airport or to the High Commission party and just, you know, players immediately just sat together because the, the same travel agent would, would, would do all the preparations. Um, so, yeah, what happened on tour, stayed on tour, you met in the bar, uh, the close of play, and there were no press conferences uh, unless, you know, there was a major political uh, issue going on and England had to announce they were going to stay or go home. Um, it was all it was all done in, done in the bar. And... I think, it, in a way, it's healthier. Um, we're sort of spoon-fed now. Um, there's a press conference every day. A player is put up and answers questions from the media, now on Zoom, obviously, the last couple of years. So we're sort of spoon-fed um, decent quotes, uh, which have to be written up. And, yeah, uh, Peter can obviously compare it with, with political life, but, I mean, I've prefer it. I think the reader gets a better deal if each individual newspaper correspondent writes what he thinks, having heard in the bar, you know, the, the latest gossip and that, you know, Chris Holder's got a hamstring strain or whatever. Um, each individual um, writes his own uh, copy rather than a sort of group piece that comes out if everybody's writing up the same quotes. Mm-hmm. They're usually, usually in my experience, terribly bland quotes, aren't they? Particularly, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, when a cricketer says, to tell you the truth, you know that something really boring is about to follow. It's a sort of giveaway. To tell you the truth, we really should have bowled better. You know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, I think they're better than they were f- five years ago. And yes, um, Eng- uh, England players are being trained better in, in, in use of the media. Uh, than they were a few years ago, I would say. So that Stuart Broad will, will give us, you know, a fascinating analysis of, um, you know, that 29% of his uh, balls outside off stump have been let go or something. Uh, you know, real detail. And, and most of them are, are, are becoming good talkers. Uh, there are a few, you know, sort of very, very shy ones who won't give anything away. But, um, so yeah, you, you do get something out of them. I mean, you, you need to listen to them. Uh, those press conferences, whether you buy into uh, simply writing up their quotes and slapping on an intro and filing it, um, you know, that, that, that's another issue. It, it depends what the office wants. Let's continue briefly with the uh, comparison with um, the parliamentary lobby. So mm. there's, a, the, there's an, an official spokesman for the Prime Minister who gives an off-the-record briefing, I think. It can be quoted as saying a Whitehall spokesman said or something a government spokesman said, or Downing Street spokesman. But then, then you have the, this other thing, which is called sources, or friends of. And so it, friends of, um, you know, friends of Keir Starmer might say, that is code for Keir Starmer said, but he said it on lobby terms. Is that happen? Or, and the other one, it's much overused these days, I think, and very perilous, is sort of Downing Street sources or Tory sources say some piece of outrageous rubbish, which is then parroted by the political editors 
as a as a as a background as as the evidence of a story. Do you have those um, things in cricket journalism? We've got a wonderful um, uh, media manager at the moment, Danny Rubin. I'm not a great fan of comms in general, but the uh, the England media manager is, is fantastic, uh, Danny Rubin, a real enthusiast um, for for cricket. Um, living the dream he, he says um, and he'll give us a steer if it seems likely that you know jimmy anderson's not going to be fit for the test in three days time um and so you know we we, we can use that as a steer you know it is understood or whatever nathan lehman's recent book the test which i think so highly of has got a very a media manager who may be based on ruben i don't know but he, he comes over as a really appealing worldly wise compassionate character unlike the creatures the really disgusting creatures in my view who 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 surround leading politicians these dishonest <laughs> and venal mendacious no careful we're, we're having a cricket podcast <laughs> yes i know but I, I'm liking <laughs> about speaking, this. we're straying a little bit we're straying a little bit off um off the pitch here yes nevertheless yeah. No, yeah. what we're trying to do is make a provide a comparison right. about compare two. and contrast All right. and, and mr rubin we're discussing sounds rather good news yeah he is really good news um we're, we're very lucky to have him now, we've got to move on a little bit because we've got nine countries to cover from, uh, <laughs> from your book, Shield. And as I say, there's a, they're very vivid pictures of touring, not just of touring in each country, but of the, the history and context of uh, cricket in each country. The first country is Australia. Um, one a most incidental detail you mentioned in Australia is a really important story, and that's the treatment of indigenous Australians you mentioned uh, almost en passant, they indigenous Australians weren't even Australian citizens. They weren't even admitted to citizenship until 1957. And in Queensland, you were struck by seeing indigenous Australians at cricket matches. In Queensland, they were, you know, confined to reservations until mm. 1971, mm. Um, which is terribly, of course, reminiscent of um, apartheid conditions. And perhaps it. You can understand why there was such a rapport between white Australia and, you know, white South Africa uh, for such a long period, why they had sporting relations for such a long period. Was there a white supremacist undertone about the relations between Australia and South Africa, which explains why Australia wanted to go on playing with South Africa um, so much more than anybody else, as, as I recollect? Well, it's in a, in a way, I, I don't want to duck out of this, except that I do, in that I've never seen a South Africa versus Australia test series um, in action, so I wouldn't be able to... No, we're talking about the 70s here. We're not talking about... even, even the 70s and before. great age that you are, you weren't at the early sort of... You weren't around in the early 70s when Australia was meaningly trying to retain the South African connection. And English and England too. Australia tried even harder, I think. Yeah. Well, let's perhaps move. Having just noted that as a, a very important detail in your book, another point I'd like to pick up about the Australian section is um, um, you discuss the strength of grade cricket as um, a mm. conduit of progress in Australian cricket. Mm. And you mentioned mm. this phrase about six, every batter in Australia, six centuries away from the Australian side. Mm. As long as he makes three for his first grade team and then three for his state, um, yeah, he's pushing for selection. Mm. That's um, a very 
you know, that's a very strong system. Um, and it was strong it enough. Hmm. And I, I think uh, in, the, in the history of cricket, it boils down to that the, the standard has always been maintained in Australian grey cricket and in Sydney in particular. There's nowhere that's been so consistently excellent at cricket um, as Sydney grey cricket, I would say. And the latest manifestation is that, you know, Stark, Hazelwood and, and Cummins, the new captain, you know, they're, they're all products of Sydney grey cricket. And I, I, I think we're probably in England not so fully aware as we should be about the impact of Aussie rules um, becoming a nationwide sport. I mean, it was sort of confined basically to Victoria in the uh, until the 60s, 70s, and sort of semi-professional. And the explosion, I mean, brilliantly orchestrated commercially, the explosion of Aussie rules around all Australian cities now to have that team. So that has become, along with cricket, the, the, so the Australian na national sport. Um, and it's been taking over the cricket grounds of Australia. And, you know, because they're now sort of multi-stadiums, most of them, and the uh, cricket pitches dropped in for a week of the year when there's a test match or a one-day international. Um, but Aussie rules is taking over Australian sport at the expense of cricket. You know, the MCG, you know, the MCG is you know, full every weekend of the year, basically, but for Aussie rules, not for cricket. Cricket Victoria has had to move out of the MCG. This is terrible. I didn't know any of this. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid it is. But um, uh, Sydney Grey Cricket, I think, will keep the standard high. Or oh, is already, uh, given the encroachments. So, so the Adelaide Oval, I mean, for example, and uh, uh, is now um, Aussie rules primarily in just uh, a couple of South Australia games. You know, when the Queensland play at the Gabba, you know, maybe once a year, um, they're forced out by other sports. Well, let's move on alphabetically to Bangladesh. A lot of... Um... Very interesting detail in the Bangladesh section. One thing that came home to me was the description of Tamim Iqbal um, learning mm. cricket on the roof um, yeah. of his house, uh, which is very similar to the experience of Javed Miandad. Um, his forerunner, he describes rooftop cricket um, in Karachi. as, um, And it's a, it was a great training for both of them in keeping the ball down. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I, I should say that I only did... Um... England made three tours and I only done two of them uh, of Bangladesh. So it, 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 that's a chapter that's shorter than uh, any other. Um, yes, Tammy, but he also had a driveway. Um, uh, and it was um, remarkably similar to, I mean, Verinda Sewag has, uh, didn't he, did he not raise the bar as a test match opener? Mm. Or as a test batsman scoring at a faster rate than any test batsman has um, had before? Um, you know, AT runs for 100 balls as an opener, sort of blazing 300 by T and that sort of thing. Uh, and I went to his driveway in uh, uh, the outskirts of Delhi, uh, and it was an absolute belter of a place to practice. <laughs> um, and Tamim was lucky enough to have something similar as, as a driveway. Um, and, it's, you know, if you, on the age, from the age of three and four, you're batting on a really flat um, piece of concrete that's the best place to start if you're going to be an attacking opening batsman, as Sewag and Tammy McMahon have been. Another detail in the Bangladesh section uh, mention uh, 
really resonated with for me with the stories now of um, discrimination in um, in English cricket. Um, talk about well, you mentioned a hundred thousand Bangladeshis in East London who don't have access to a turf wicket, which is a very um, significant detail. But you also talk about the very you mentioned a very sad story of. A, Brilliant Bangladeshi uh, teenage slow left arm bowler who's discarded um, from Middlesex next because he couldn't speak English. Um, I know, I know. It's, it's tragic, isn't it? All wasted opportunities. Um, well, I mean, the story in short was I started something called the Wisden City Cup for inner city kids uh, who didn't have access to mainstream clubs. Um, and with the help of um, Phil Nappett and Angus Fraser, it started in Middlesex. Um, so Victoria Park having only um, artificial pitches, there's no uh, grass pitch in the east end of London. So 100,000 Bangladeshis, as you say, no turf pitch, except if they go out to you know, Essex, Wanstead areas. Um, so this um, ECB, uh, Wisden City Cup, and it's now become the ECB City Cup. As it well done. Came too big a labour of love. Um, it, it's not been going for the last two years because of COVID, but I hope it will be part of their 12-point plan that they um, revive it. It is now extended to 16 cities. Anyway, in these early days, um, yeah, there's just um, a, a wonderful um, uh, off-spinner came along and uh, MCC took him onto their ground staff. Uh, and John Stevens said, we'll be very happy if uh, you bring up somebody like that every year. Um, and then uh, this off spinner brought along a, a mate of his left arm spinner, uh, worked in Brick Lane restaurants, could never play league cricket because you have to work on a Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and he's just the most natural left arm spinner. Uh, and we played against uh, MCC young cricketers, the sort of final at Grace Road. And this guy took three wickets in three overs. And, um, you know, Middlesex said, come along to the nets this winter. And uh, he didn't have a car or anything. So he, uh, it was arranged for him to be taken to the Middlesex indoor nets. And after two occasions, uh, I came back from a, some tour and found out what, what's happened to this lad, Amin al-Islam. And he said, uh, he doesn't go anymore because he can't speak English. Um, two, two, he went to two lessons and that was, was it. it. his decision not to go? Or was it Middlesex for he can't speak Middlesex. English? Middle, you know, that's that's that, what I understood. I think, I think that... Um, that you should give that as evidence to the ECB. It's so upsetting. Well, it's also so long ago. and um... Yeah, well, it does give you a big insight into the parochialism, really, of the mm. authority, people who run cricket in this country. The, the, the coach, I have to say, did leave a couple of years afterwards, so I would hope things improved. But mm. oh, the waste, it makes you bang your head against a brick wall, doesn't it? The, the waste out there. Mm. Tragic, actually. I mean, and uh, and shaming, and but uh, as you say, it was a long time ago. Maybe it, I think what we need to do, though, is to make sure that doesn't that kind of thing doesn't happen ever again. That Absolutely, happens. and that's what uh, if you saw the twelve-point plan that's just been announced again to boost the community talent champions, who are meant to the the design is that they should link grassroots Asian cricket with the county clubs and help that mm. the young Asian cricketer on the pathway. And it, it was announced as a pivotal part of the ECB's South Asian plan three years ago, and nothing happened for 18 months. Um, Maybe COVID, just be generous to them. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. This was the first year or so, was before, long before COVID. They didn't find any money for it. Fine words, 
no money. And it was only when I went to found a, a friend of a friend who had a hedge fund and he put up the money that um, five uh, community talent champions were hired to do one day a week for the to cover the whole country. Uh, and two of them were in Leicester and, and very fine ambassadors. They were too. But so it, the action plan, community talent champions, where are they? No, nowhere except these 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 five people that an outside sponsor has come in to finance. Now, um, now if you want, if you want any, we'll go on talking about this. We let us keep us in touch, Shield, with this. We will uh, monitor progress, announce any good news, and if there's any uh, backsliding from the ECB, we'll give them a giant kick up the arse on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> they, get, they have to say they're getting must be getting used to it by now. Yeah. They bloody well deserve it, actually. It's <laughs> now, a national now, shame. Well, we must move on. We've got a lot of more countries to cover. We've now come on to India, a very important country, very important section of your book. Um, perhaps I'll just ask the general question. Um, is India the country that you've been to which, where cricket has changed more than any other? Have you see more change in Indian cricket than, than anywhere else? And, if, and and for the better or for the worse? Well, I think Afghanistan is uh, yeah. where it's changed oh, most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I've only been to the northwest frontier. I haven't been over the border. Um, so I, I, I couldn't say of that. Um, I don't know if, if you went to a Ranji Trophy 40 years ago, a match, and now would there be such a huge difference? Um, I don't know. So uh, obviously immense changes when it comes to limited overs and T20 in the IPL, but um, in general, I don't know. Um, I love your story of uh, meeting someone who bowled at Ranji. We have a great friend in Ireland, Godfrey Graham, who's a beautiful leg spinner. And he bowled at Hammond in the Nets in Lords just after World War II. Uh, <laughs> I love that continuity. Mm, yes, I love that continuity. Um, but yeah, I, I did when I, I was allowed to meet an 80-year-old who bowled at Ranji and... Uh, the glint in his eye, um, because um, Ranju put sixpence or something, or, or even a guinea, I forget which it was, on, on, on the stumps. And um, <laughs> you got the guinea if you uh, got him out. But th and this was just on a rough piece of ground. It wasn't a, a, a pitch. Um, when uh, Ranju used to take his holidays at Gilling in Yorkshire. I loved your, a lot of stories in the Indian section. I'll just pick up one. The story of the or match in the orphanage where... Victor Marks um, of Somerset in mm. England <laughs> was replaced uh, for, for a vital yeah. death over by a by a twelve year old. <laughs> yes, it was wonderful, and uh, um, yeah. So uh, I mean, the, you couldn't believe what fun touring was in the in, in the good old days before, before there was sort of them and us, um, you know, media and uh, players were completely separate. Um, so yeah, uh, Mike really had recommended this uh, orphanage in Calcutta, SOS Children's Villages, uh, which is a fine organisation uh, around the cricket playing world. Um, and um, so uh, that was in eighty one two, and then in eighty four five, uh, Victor and uh, Neil Foster and I went there and played this game, and um, uh, when it boiled out of the death overs, um, uh, Victor got a bit of tap from Fozzy. And therefore, this the twelve-year-old orphan lad walked up to Victor as he was about to start the next over and took the ball from him. Uh, we wanted some real pace, <laughs> rather than uh, rolled English off spin and sort of Victor sort of uh, 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 and went off. But 
field at cover, and uh, it was he took it very well. Oh, it should be. Peter and I have had the experience in Pakistan of a twelve-year-old mm. of a twelve-year-old um, asking, you know, if he can bowl at us. Uh, sometimes not even how she can bowl at us, and. Um, you know, it's always a mistake to say yes. The twelve-year-old mm-hmm. always turns out to be the next Wazim Akram or the next Abdul Qadir, yeah. and makes you look an absolute mug. Yeah. Yes. It's so exciting, though, that Richard. It's so beautiful. Yeah. All the virtues, uh, uh, chaps, of uncoachedness. Oh. Um, you know, Pakistan, uh, West Indies, East in the old days. Um, how wonderful it is to have um, young cricketers who haven't been coached and who bowl with their own. Uh, favorite action um, instead of getting you know leading elbow right up uh, the individuality fully expressed uh, how wonderful that is oh it's so beautiful because malinga would have been abolished in english mm. cricket there's no concept of bringing mm. a, a malinga coming through the ranks or or, mm. or an abdul Qadir. they'd have been just mm. uh, obliterated before they got there mm. but the homogeneity of of english i know in, uh, in, in, in Bristol, uh, where, where I live, um, uh, there's a, a Bristol Afghans cricket club, and they have a um, uh, impromptu nets of their own uh, on a astroturf pitch in a park um, on Monday afternoons. And you just go there, and almost every other ball is disappearing like a trace of bullet over long off, long on. Um, and you know, there's just they run in, and the physicality and the speed table table cricket. Um, yeah. So any, anything's possible. Um, just wonderful individual skills, but uh, yeah. You make a very serious point at the end about Indian cricketers. You express the wish that they exercised a bit more ethical influence uh, on mm-hmm. um, on issues, as Muralitharan yeah. has done in Sri Lanka, and also Sankara and uh, Mahela Jawadna, and we had as a guest yeah. um, some months ago. Um, Indian cricketers seem to be much more neutral or absent on big issues. And I th- when we had Ram Gua and Mihir Bose earlier in the podcast, he said a lot of them just routinely tweet and uh, write on social media in support of the Modi government. And, and um, you know, they echo the voice of authority, which is rather yep. depressing to hear, isn't it? Uh, we, we just saw the beginnings of possibilities, um, Virat Kohli um, tweeting in defence of Mohammed Shami when he got all that yeah, abuse. Wasn't that lovely, yeah. Yes. That's mm. just the start of what hopefully is a very long process. Mind you, it, it does. this happens in Britain as well. Um, Ian Botham was a very distinguished uh, all-rounder, but Lord Botham of Boris Johnson in the House of Lords is something which is a politicisation of cricket in my view, but that's a different subject. Or both them negotiating trade deals with Australia and stuff like that. This is absolute. This is just as sort of wretched as anything which goes on in um, in India. And let's not just have this colonial talk. It's only them that do it. Give us another book, Peter. Right, right. <laughs> right let's move on. New Zealand. Um, uh, next in the alphabet. Very interesting description in New Zealand cricket um, as. Um, You'd say as a boutique game, sort of played for fun in the summer as um, relaxation from the serious business of rugby in winter. Um, well, there were boutique grounds, yeah. Boutique, boutique grounds, grounds. yeah. Mm. Mm. And um, this, they're, they're very beautiful grounds, and you describe them very, very well. Um, and above all, they're very, they're very intimate, aren't they, New Zealand cricket grounds? And you can do things on New Zealand cricket grounds, you describe, like um, you know, spect- as a spectator, like actually inspecting the 
mm-hmm. the wicket um, that have long gone in English cricket, can't you? Mm-hmm. The informality of it, yeah. But this is all pre-COVID, and maybe things have changed forever. But uh, yeah, it's just delightful informality. They're so New Zealand cricketers are so far from being up themselves because mm. uh, you know they're 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 inglorious by comparison with the All Blacks. Um, so yeah, there's a sort of an innate modesty. Uh, anyway, also opposite to the All Blacks, opposite to to Indian cricketers, you know, who who don't need any. Um, uh, support from the public or, or or media because their their gods and their status is not um, is not threatened. But yeah, New Zealand is as the opposite end of the spectrum with you know England cricket is in between. Mm. And the, the, that sort of attitude, that modesty, seems to have survived even though they're the world Test champions. Um, and um, you know, in spite of their being one of the best teams in the world now, it, doesn't it? Yeah, you can't imagine Kane Williamson being too far up himself, can you? No. Wonderful man. Indeed. Um, and, one, and one of a long line of wonderful people produced. How that tiny country goes on producing some of the greatest cricketers who ever lived, when their major sport is rugby, it's a matter to marvel at, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, I'm very lucky. Now, a very rich section for both of us was the section on Pakistan. Peter, do you want to come in on this? Because um, particularly Shield describes Chitral and Gilgit very well, doesn't he? Well, talk about Chitral and Gilgit to us. Because uh, everybody... I, I, I've taken uh, three cricket tours, I think, to Chitral and played at 12,500 feet. Oh, you lucky thing. Yeah, we've... I mean, I'll invite you on our next one, Shield. I mean, it's... Uh, we, and all those... You're playing on little... You're 6,000 feet up anyway, and you're playing in front of these enormous mountains mm. um, against essentially tape ball cricketers. But when we thought we thought we'd play red ball against them because just to give us a, a mm. chance, and they still thrashed us, even though none of them had ever handled them, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's such a joyful. We drew, we drew against the Frontier Corps. Mm. Where was that? Something. Uh, in Chitral, I forget the name of the grad, and we more or less drew against the Chitral Scouts. That was a great game. And then we, they took us to their mess, which had been built by the British in 1896, and we had a delicious lunch. So you have a, you have, it was just joyful. Why didn't Colonel Durand in the 1890s have cricket equipment with him so that they could have been playing cricket since 1890? Chitral is not part of the Durand line. Yeah, and it's the Durand line is somewhere away from there, but it's uh, yeah, it's. Um, but didn't he go there? Did I did Durand go? I didn't. I, this is a piece of information I can't. Is this is this something you say in your book? I don't. No, know. no, no, no. At all. I'm just wondering. Um, you know, given the, the the facility with which they they pick up cricket in those parts. I mean, why didn't Durand when he was um, conquering the area or, or working treaties with them? Um, uh, popularised cricket. Durand, just to, for the background to some of our listeners, but Durand is the man who gave his gives his name to the present frontier between Pakistan and Afghanistan, isn't he? He is. Actually, I was Durand. on the Durand We were line, on the Durand line, yep. Only a few weeks ago, as it happens. Um, and um, it, they've, they've stuck an enormous great fence uh, through it now um, in order to stop uh, people crossing the border. And uh, if you approach the set fence, 
there's an enormous, very, very menacing red sign. If you come any closer, you will be shot, and they do mean it. So uh, don't. I don't recommend going anywhere near. Did, the, did they play the Roof of the World tournament this year? Um, Hansa Chichal Gilgit, maybe Swart as well. Uh, I, again, I don't know that. I didn't. Uh, Okay, I, COVID might have stopped that. But. It might have stopped that. We played our we played a game of cricket in Shandor, where the famous polar match takes place every summer, mm. and it was a wonderful game uh, because it, it was early September, and it was either we were cloud over and snow, and it was freezing. And the moment the snow the the clouds cleared, it was wonderfully warm and hot, and we played a local village up there uh, at twelve thousand feet. And gosh, it was fun on the. I played on the on the polo pitch. I do recommend, and it's very easy to do, to go and take a cricket tour of do a cricket tour of of Chitral. There's a very good school, run by my friend Kerry Schofield. Um, there's a wonderful hotel, Sirajal Mook. He run, owns that, um, and the hospitality you get when you go to all the adjacent villages uh, and they you play games of cricket against them. I'm gagging to go. Yeah, well, this, yeah, consider yourself through the air that much quicker. Um, certainly, at twelve and a half thousand feet, it does. Yeah, <laughs> um, mm. and it goes much further. So uh, mm. you, you're rewarded by your um, your smashed leg in my case, but it, it pretty well goes to the adjacent mountain top. Yeah. <laughs> That counts as a boundary. You don't have the old rules. You don't have to run that. You, <laughs> the batsmen don't have to run that while the ball is retrieved from the next mountain. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, very much endorse your uh, sort of conclusion, the Pakistan section. Um, should, Pakistan should get more visitors. Yes, it, it very, very much should. Not just cricket, but uh, all round. I'm so glad you mentioned Mahendra yeah, well, wonderful they, place. And, and your, your revelation, they were already playing cricket there 2,500 years ago, uh, before Christ, uh, came as a surprise to me. But I, I, it is the most glorious place to visit, isn't it? That sense of history and time and mm. walking down streets, which people were walking down 5,000 years ago, looking mm. at swimming pools they swam in 5,000 years ago. Oh, what You could see cricket fitting in there. That would have been a good league, wouldn't it? The Mohenshara oh, yes. Premier League. And the Harappa Mahanjudaru match would have been uh, would have drawn thousands of spectators. Actually, yeah. make the interesting point that history doesn't always mean progress. And you sort of, and you say in the book that um, you know, um, uh, present day Pakistan has rather regressed from from that civilization. You talk about very penetratingly about the the harm that's befallen Pakistan from the sort of concentration of um, state resources into. Um, well, into the armed services and the intelligence services, the political patronage, uh, the underspending on health and education. But you also, and you have a very important section on the role of the Edie Foundation um, uh, as a sort of substitute NHS and, and welfare service. Yeah, was it terrible a couple of years ago when he died? There was absolutely no recognition in, in, in the West of yeah, what, yeah. Uh, what Edie had done. I had the great privilege of um, getting to know Mr. Edie quite well. I, 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 uh, I made a film the General Proper in Karachi. The proposition of which was to get to film, make film about the endemic violence. And the idea was you, you sat in an Edie, Edie ambulance centre, and every mm -hmm. time there was a call out, uh, you got in the back of the ambulance. 
and uh, went and picked up the, you know, the, the, the wounded and the injured and so on. And every night I would sit next to Mr. Edie as the sun went down uh, in, a, in his ambulance centre in Central, uh, just near the Stock Exchange actually in, in Karachi. And I had the enormous privilege to talk about life and the world with Mr. Edie. Do you know, I asked him, who is your hero? Do you know what he said? He came well, up, I think, from memory, it was one was Gandhi, which came as no surprise. The other was Stalin. <laughs> uh, well, well, if you think about it, he was a young man in, uh, was a young man in, who came over, I think, at the time of partition. And the Communist Party was quite a virtuous thing compared to, in his view, I, 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 sorry, I'm giving here from memory. I mean, I think possibly he was a great hero of the left. You know, he was a great, in his image, somebody who was trying to bring about equality and fight the evils of colonialism and capitalism. Um, I can, and, and maybe he, and he was, that was um, something that did surprise well, me. And he'd just beaten Hitler. Anyway, let us remember Edie is the greatest humanitarian of the 20th century. Absolutely. Time magazine called him. Couldn't, I'm so glad you uh, write about him there because he, he is neglected. Mm. Have you read his autobiography? Uh, no, no, I haven't. I it. do recommend it. It's a terrific read and how he... It's almost, you know, for a Western perspective, Christ-like, his early life, you know, he's brought mm. out in it. Uh, mm. the, his dedication to serving others mm. um, is very, it, it happens very, from a very early age. He knew what his mission was from the sort of late 40s. Just like our politicians today. <laughs> mm. Yep. Uh, irony alert for some, <laughs> just in case. Yep. Um, before um, uh, we leave Pakistan, Shield, you've given, uh, I was interested in your account of the invention of reverse swing and the invention of the, the Dusra, uh, something that Peter and I have discussed quite quite often. You uh, attribute um, the phenomenon, um, Shield, of reverse swing to um, Sully Moltaf. You concur with my conjectures? Totally on reverse swing, which I looked into, only in the sense that um, the major claimant in um, Wounded Tiger in Peter's book to reverse swing is, um, is Safraz Nawaz. Um, oh, no, before before that. I mean, Safraz sort of systematised it, and um, but there were people reverse swinging unintentionally before Safraz in Lahore, like Salim Altaf. That would be my argument, but they didn't have any you know, name for the phenomenon. Yeah. We, um, I had the great privilege of interviewing the man who was then Pakistan's oldest test cricketer, a man called Isra Ali, who played four, he's a left arm mode, played four test matches for Pakistan in the 50s. And, um, and he claimed um, that he used to bowl reverse swing routinely. There was nothing special about it. And he, mm. um, uh, in the, as far back as the 1950s when the ball got old. So, um, and I, I would think this is a Lahore phenomenon uh, rather than Karachi because uh, most cricket in Karachi was on matting and you wouldn't have the same abrasion as you would have uh, playing up in Lahore. Yes, he was, he was a Lahore, um, Isra mm. Ali. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that would fit that theory. Mm. Should we talk about uh, South Africa extensively? Uh, and... Um, you talk about particularly the experience of uh, watching a multiracial South African side playing a match in Soweto against England immediately after the um, 
end of apartheid, attended by Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. uh, and you sort of contrast this, though, with the long, enduring isolation and patronising um, attitudes to um, black African players um, like um, Makaya Nantini. The enduring legacy of apartheid has been expressed um, very strongly by um, black players in uh, the last year or so, but you end up in a much more optimistic frame of mind than other guests we've had on South Africa about South Africa's ability to integrate yeah, I think that's really has happened in the last year or so. There has been genuine soul-searching uh, under Mark Boucher's coaching. You know, he was one of, I would say, you know, he would, he would shout boy at Makaya and Tini even when he's, he got 300 test wickets mm. or whatever. Um, but I think he has presided over the change. And I think we saw the fruits of it in the uh, the World T20. I mean, uh, Quinton de Kock uh, saying in his statement, um, that Tembo Bavoom was a, a flipping good leader. He didn't have to go out of his way to say that. Um, uh, you know, Bavuma might not be worth his place in the T20 side as a batsman, um, but, you know, as, as a captain, that you could just, under him in that tournament, you see them pulling together um, before the, um, when the anthems are taking place, it always used to be the white players on one side and the non-white players on the other um, but I, I, I do think um, they've become colorblind in the last year or so. That's my observation. It's very reassuring because we, that's, it's contrary to some of the things we're being told by others. And it's oh, when were you being told that? In the last, uh, we interviewed, for instance, I'm sure you know him very well, Mo Ali, the young, the brilliant uh, journalist in Cape Town. He wasn't nearly as hopeful about it, that. Or Andre but, uh, I'm just talking about the last month or two. Ah, oh, the last month or two. Now that, yeah. we, that, yeah. that the World T20. Yeah. Yeah. The World T20 was a manifestation of the new South Africa. Yes, our, our earlier <laughs> interviews were, were before that. So um, that, is, mm. that is indeed a very encouraging development. Let's talk about Sri Lanka. Very struck by your commentary on the kind of Britishness of um, Sri mm. Lankan cricket, particularly, well, at least in its upper reaches. Um, uh, well, it's the impact of the missionaries, isn't it? They set up all the schools. And uh, I remember I did a profile of Siddharth Wetamumi uh, as the first Sri Lankan cricketer of the year, uh, back in 80, um, 84, wasn't it, when he got that big 100 at Lords? Um, and he said the copy of C.B. Fry's book in the house was just the most well-thumbed book in the house. And, oh, you know, yeah. this, is, this is left elbow. And you see, I think, or I see in Sri Lankan batting, more of a leading elbow than you do in Indian cricket, so that Sri Lankans hit it that much straighter uh, than Indian batsmen who are going that much square of the wicket. Um, and, and the missionary influence continues. The, the, these schools, you know, it's the great strength of Sri Lankan cricket, isn't it? Um, you know, almost all their um, test players, almost all their test batsmen have gone to these elite schools in Kandy and Colombo. Uh, and a few of the bowlers, you know, like Malinga, come from from the outskirts, um, uh, you know, sort of dredged up from the beaches or, or the or the uh, the backwoods. Amazing that uh, I love that CB Fry piece piece of information because CB Fry, of course, wrote the very imperialistic Jubilee Book of Cricket mainly, didn't he? Well, for, he ghosted it. The, or the ghosted it. He ghosted it for Angie. For Angie, yeah. Yes. The West Indies, a lot of rich detail in the West Indian section. I love the very long profile of Everton Weeks. 
died only quite recently in his 90s. Um, oh, what a dear man. Great human being. Great I mean, how many uh, composed an 11 of people who have been top cricketers, top commentators, and top human beings. Mm. Uh, and Everton's got been number batting at number four in that team. He just made the, the wheels go round, and the people in life, aren't they, who oil the wheels, uh, and those who like throwing a spanner in them. And he just uh, helped everybody get on. And I think uh, if, if, if we're being topical, uh, what a, a significant change there was between the England tour of 53-4 to the West Indies uh, under Len Hutton, and then when the Australians went the following year, and the uh, Australian players refused to go to parties thrown by white West Indies cricketers if they excluded the black West Indian players. Mm. Um, England, I'm afraid, the year before had, uh, had gone to those parties and, and the Australians refused to go to those apartheid parties uh, if you know people like Everton Weeks went allowed along. Mm, very, very creditable. We 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 had David Woodhouse um, talking mm. about his book on that tour, which is very, very, as you know, is a stable, uh, so to say, a stable mate for yours at um, Fairfield Books, and a very, very, very good book it is too. Um, very rich in in detail um, outside of cricket as well as about cricket. Is there anything anything that you've seen in cricket overseas, either at a, one particular ground or in cricket? Um, the administration of cricket or the playing of cricket generally, anything you've seen overseas that you would like to see imported into English cricket? Well, the the, the, the most essential one with the New Zealand cricket uh, governance model, they have eight great and good, two at least who have played um, professional cricket um, for New Zealand. And they, you know, have gone on to be uh, masters of their field or whatever. Um, so a small panel, great and good, and who have played cricket, whereas the, I'm afraid the ECB executive board, I mean, they may have been very good chief constables of Dorset or whatever in their time, but not, none of them have ever played a single day of professional cricket. And maybe they're appointed for that reason, so that um, the chief exec can go off and not have anybody um, hampered by anybody who knows what they're talking about in cricket. Mm. A very profound note to end on. Um, Shield, thank you very much for being with us. Bear with us uh, for a little bit longer because um, I'm going to remind listeners that it's their chance to contribute to the MCC Foundation's appeal this year. Um, the appeal is devoted to two causes. The MCC's, the Foundation's Cricket Hubs, which bring cricketing opportunity to a lot of deprived areas of, of Britain and uh, underrepresented communities. Um, that's half of it. But the other cause that will benefit is the wonderful Alsama cricket project in the Lebanon for um, refugees from Syria, which um, we profiled uh, ourselves uh, earlier this year which is an absolutely wonderful project. And it was a great thrill talking to three of the beneficiaries, uh, teenage beneficiaries of that project. So we ask listeners to search online simply for MCC Foundation, The Big Give. And if they give after midday on um, the 30th of November, uh, for the next week, everything you give to the MCC Foundation will be doubled. 
uh, for the following week until the 7th of December. Could I um, uh, say here, here, uh, having been out to that um, Beirut with a, a bowling machine kindly provided by Nye Williams of, of Bowler in Bristol, and been able to um, feed the bowling machine in the Shatila refugee camp, and the joy that those kids had um, in playing, batting against it. Um, yeah, cricket has never been more joyful than it was in that refugee camp when these Syrian boys and girls had a go at it. Oh, what a wonderful experience that must have been. On which note, I must reluctantly say goodbye to the Shield Berry and thank him for a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us. And thank you very much for joining us, uh, Shield. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you. The snow thickened during our conversation here. Uh, here in Wiltshire, uh, and it's now practically impossible to see outside. I can hardly wait. It's on its way. Goodbye.